Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Northeast Newscast. This is your host, Paul Thompson, Managing Editor of the Northeast News. This week we'll be talking to Ingrid Burnett, District 19 State Representative for Missouri. Burnett joined the Missouri Legislature for the 99th General Assembly, which convened on January 4th, 2017. We're currently at the midpoint, which runs from March 20th to March 25th. It's been a busy session, and Burnett will keep us surprised on everything that's happened. We'll start off by talking about the importance of constituent phone calls and the impact they can have on representatives. Then we'll discuss charter school expansion, as well as a bill that Burnett filed herself on historic preservation after following the saga of Kansas City University's Master Plan Development District. From there, we'll get into the minimum wage fight that's permeated the entire state of Missouri. We'll also talk real ID laws, senior services protections, dog breed bans, and finally, Burnett's thoughts about the $800 million general obligation bond package, which will come before Kansas City, Missouri voters on April 4th. Without further ado, our conversation with Ingrid Burnett. Thank you for listening. Okay, Ingrid, thanks again for joining us. I appreciate you being here. Um, and let's just get off. Um, obviously, it's the 99th General Assembly of the Missouri Legislature, which began on January 4th. 2017. Yes. We're in, I guess it's spring break. It's a, it's a recess here about the midway point. So you've had a little bit of time under your belt to kind of get a feel for the legislature, what the atmosphere is now. Uh, can you describe a little bit of what your expectations were going in, how the reality has played out, and, and just really what the atmosphere is in Jefferson City right now? Uh, I guess what I expected more of that I... Um that I'm not really experiencing is the um, the deep division between the partisan in the partisan politics. Mm-hmm. So, um, what's encouraging? I expected there to be a lot more uh, just straight party line mm-hmm. kinds of um, activity. And what's encouraging is that more and more particularly the more um, senior and experienced Republican legislators are making an effort to uh, reach out a little bit and include, allow us, allow the Democrats and especially the new incoming legislators to really ask their questions and get their opinion put out there. Has there been anything that's uh, been surprising or, or I don't, shocking, I don't, maybe that's too strong of a word, but is there a moment that you can point to where, where you kind of had to soak it all in and say, wow, we're really here and we're really doing this? When we vote, <laughs> <laughs> on those third reads, when we vote, and those uh, are always kind of a, a, a sort of like the uh, ice bucket challenge. <laughs> <laughs> when you've gone Monday through Wednesday, uh, in getting the bill introduced, working on perfecting it, talking about the amendments, getting your positions out there, and then you know, then the ice bucket hits, and <laughs> um, pretty much um, the there's a pretty strong agenda out there. Um, I at times am I'm kind of uh, I wouldn't say alarmed, but taken aback mm-hmm. by how. Uh, how loud people will get on the floor. Some of the representatives will 
shout while they're <laughs> and, making their case. Yes, yeah. uh, and and we'll shout and interrupt each other and um, it become somewhat um, discourteous. It's not the bastion of decorum that it's you expected? It's not the bastion of decorum that I expected, no. And I guess that shouldn't be a big surprise to me because I used to listen online when John was mm-hmm. was there and I could, you know, that was going on then too. Uh, we did have an event one time when um, one of the Republican legislators was primed and it looked like it was all he was all set up to offer an amendment that was going to uh, change one of the bills uh, that was the bill that had to do with the change of venue and jurisdiction and tort reform kinds of things. And he's a uh, he's a highly respected lawyer, had has a good legal mind, and was prepared to introduce an amendment that was going to fix some of the problems with that legislation. And uh, they preempted him, and he became very angry. <laughs> um, had a little bit of a fit on the floor, uh, walked out, and then came back in and apologized to the body and to the people who were in the... When you say they preempted him, what's the process? How does that work? Well, so the way it's set up is the speaker um, recognizes people to speak, and the floor leader is always the first one to be recognized. And so Mm. he will uh, recommend that the speaker... Um, it, it notice a, a certain gentleman from some county mm-hmm. or lady from some county to bring up uh, bill numbers such and such for perfection or for third red or mm-hmm. and so then the speaker recognizes that person. Prior to that, there's typically if there are going to be amendments offered they're prepared they're all ready to go mm-hmm. and they're up on the board for us to see so there's an agenda they follow it pretty right. explicitly right mm-hmm. and and they they're prepared this person's going to go first and offer their amendment first because that's going to impact the other amendments that are going to be offered down the line mm-hmm. and um he was expecting to go first <laughs> and uh someone else offered an amendment that would have um and that did um, make his amendment uh, irrelevant and impossible. You can't, once the amendment has been made, you can't, you can't amend that section. So they subverted him. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, well, I also wanted to ask you about, um, you know, there's been, uh, in this big push to reform health care in this country, uh, you'll see it from both sides, uh, you know, Democrat, Republican. There's been a big push for contacting congressmen, uh, Congress members, and this is kind of more on the national level where, you know, where I've really seen the push hit hard. Um, I was just wondering on your end, uh, in Missouri, Jeff City, how important are those constituent calls? They're very important. They're very, in fact, I think they're more important at the state level than they are at the federal level. And I get more emails, then I get phone calls. Mm-hmm. I have had a couple of opportunities to have phone conversations with constituents, and I really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, What's kind of the tenor of those calls? They're, they're worried. Mm-hmm. They're worried about uh, their pensions being taken away. They're worried that the charter school, oh my goodness, um, I received hundreds of emails 
on the charter school from all across the state, as did all of the members on the education committee. And this was really kind of going gangbusters until those emails started coming in. Mm -hmm. And um, the chair of the education committee is a a Republican woman, and uh, Catherine Swan, she had to delay our vote on the charter school bill as these emails kept coming in and at one point had them all printed off and delivered to all of us on the education committee to make sure that we were seeing the kind of opposition that was there. And in the end, there were substantial changes made to this bill before it was passed out of the House, and even then passed on just with one more vote than it needed. Right, and that one actually stuck out to me. And maybe we'll just talk about this now. We had talked about doing it later. But uh, this is particularly interesting, I think, because of how close it was. You mentioned earlier that you're not seeing as much voting on party lines as you might have expected this seems to be one of those instances where uh, Republican members decided, while there's enough pushback on this thing, that I don't really feel comfortable voting for it because my constituents don't want it. Exactly. Their constituents don't want it. The governor does. Mm-hmm. And so right prior to taking that third vote on uh, the—it uh, was prior to the perfection of the bill. Okay. The Republicans that afternoon, the Republicans had an emergency caucus um, that included the governor mm-hmm. and uh, some. Um, the rumor there out there is that um, not only the governor but some major donors mm-hmm. to uh, Republican races, with you know an explicit um, warning that if this did not pass, there would be some consequences, or if it was not voted for, there would be some consequences come the next election. Interesting. Primary challenges and things of that nature? yeah. Interesting. Well, um, I wonder with this stuff, and maybe you don't feel comfortable speaking to it, but um, how much of this, you know, you said you mentioned it passed by the one vote, essentially. How much of that is gamesmanship? When they go into that caucus, are they saying, okay, you have a particularly... Um, tough district. You have a, you'll have a hard battle when you go up against a Democrat. If you maybe we'll let you not vote for this, as you know, once we get to the number we need, we'll allow people not to vote for it to kind of save face in their home district. Is that something that that people on Twitter comment about, and it's not actually as uh, you know prevalent as you I know, think conspiracy theorists no, might expect? I, no, I think that happens. I I think uh, there is some some give and take there and along those lines. Um, but the thing about the the pushback from the constituents is that charter bill, charter school bill, was changed substantially as a result of those and and brought in the concerns that constituents were concerned about that it um, tried to address accountability, uh, more accountability, try to address um, that students from other districts can attend um, a charter school in a in a different district. It tried to address the um, the piece about um, 
making sure that as long as they're, um, the people who are want to enroll are uh, fit within the mission of the charter school, that they must admit everybody, tried to address that all of the money doesn't follow uh, the student, mm-hmm. that uh, 10% of that money is kept back in the school district. The, the one that is, I think the, I think I had read in there that even if one school is is underperforming, right, that somebody is can now start up a charter in that district anywhere in the state. Any, uh, so if one school is underperforming mm-hmm. or poorly performing, right, in a school district that may, on average, be performing very well, a charter school it may open in that district. Okay. Yeah. Um, and students from other districts can attend okay. that charter school. Uh, one of the concerns that kept coming up over and over and over again is then that money goes directly, all of that student's money goes to the charter school, and it doesn't take into account that there are some fixed costs mm-hmm. that are associated with a student leaving that that those costs don't leave with the student. Right. And so, you know, there was an attempt to address that. I don't think any of them were really satisfactory. Right. <laughs> but um, I, I think the lesson learned from that is when there is, when there is enough pushback, you're going to get, they're, they're going to listen. They're going to try anyway. They're going to, they're, they're going to try to address mm-hmm. uh, those concerns for the constituents. And, you know, what we need to do is to, Remember that, mm-hmm. and and continue to push. Pushback um, leads to action. Right. Yeah. Yes. Good. Well, cool. Well, let's move on to a, a bill that you actually filed. This is uh, HB one one eight seven related to historic preservation districts. Um, as I understand it, this relates to something that was a big story in the Northeast, which was the Kansas City University Master Plan Development District. Uh, can you maybe talk about the impetus for filing that? I, I think you did that on March first. What led you to that? Well, the stories that were coming out about it, and the way, particularly the way that the university was allowed to be exempted from all of the plans, all of the the commissions and um, the master uh, plans that we have. You know, I mean, if I put a new, I'm in an historic district. If I put a new roof on my house, if I want to paint my house, if I want to repair my driveway, I have to go through a process with the historic commission. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I even if I think that applies to even if I want to plant a tree in my front yard, sure. I have to go through a process to make sure that it's going to be in character with this historic district. And um, I think that when we start allowing developers out of that process, we weaken this that that whole fabric of the purpose of having an historic district and, and the attraction that it brings residents to and, and people who want to come in and restore these homes and bring them back to their, um, to their original glory. So what your bill will do, um, if it gets passed, essentially would make it so that or kind of take a little bit of power away from city councils to make these kind of decisions? It would take the power of the city council away to exempt developers from from the from that process. Right. So, what kind of what are you hearing from 
other members, other representatives? Uh, what's kind of the scuttlebutt on this thing at this point? Not a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it It's really kind of, right now, it's really kind of low on everybody's radar because of these other big things that we have been working right. on and pushing through. Sure. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting back and starting to um, solicit support. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, and uh, I guess the home stretch is really coming up after the break here where you're really going to start right. digging your heels in and, and, and getting the work done. All bills that can be filed from individual legislators have been filed. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be, uh, there's a process now for committees to file bills, but they are really just bills that have already been filed but combined into a larger omnibus committee type bill. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I think one other one that might be of interest to Kansas City residents in particular would be HB 1194 related to minimum wage. Uh, There was an issue here in Kansas City. They actually were able to pass, I guess, somewhat of an emergency ordinance at at the city council level in order to increase the minimum wage effective September. Now, of course, HB 1194 kind of subverts that. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about where that's at, what it's going to do, and, and where we go from here? So HB 1194 was really more targeted at St. Louis because St. Louis had just passed an ordinance to raise their minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And uh, the people who were arguing that they should not be allowed to do that and that we should just keep it at the state level minimum wage that everybody should have the same um it should not everybody should have a uniform minimum wage mm-hmm. um because they said that uh, not to do that creates chaos in the state mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh companies that have businesses in St. Louis and then outside of St. Louis are going to have to pay different wages to different employees um they um you think some of that concern is manufactured i think a lot of that concern is manufactured and we tried to address that by raising there were amendments offered to then raise the state minimum wage to eleven dollars and that was rejected right uh so uh and then we tried to to extract a commitment from the leadership in the majority party to look at raising the state minimum wage and that was rejected uh, so it, it really seems more that this is another one of those pieces of legislation that is um, to really out there to please one particular big donor mm-hmm. or maybe two. <laughs> sure. Um, I um, it passed out of the house. It did. That was another one that was highly controversial mm-hmm. and had a lot of bipartisan pushback on. Uh, so now it heads to the Senate, and I'm. I, I the encouraging thing about that is that typically, or so I've been told, mm-hmm. uh, bills that leave the house in in a weak state like that tend to not make it very far through the Senate. I mean, they kind of alter it to death, essentially, or or maybe they don't. Um, maybe they don't take it up. Right. No, know, they may not take it. They up. won't even pull it up. They're right. going to focus on other stuff that they think is more prudent, and more practical, and and has more support statewide. Right. 
Okay. Well, and I'll ask you this before we move on from this subject. Uh, there seems to be this belief in Kansas City, at least, that, well, this minimum wage, but by passing a minimum wage ordinance at the 11th hour before it's been discussed or passed by the state, that maybe there's some legal grounds here to challenge this in the court and that it could end up in Supreme Court or at least in circuit court somewhere. What are your thoughts on that possibility? Is is that something that has been discussed at the legislature? It, it Not that I'm aware of. I mean, not, not publicly. Not with me. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been. Does um, it seem like a possibility? But it, yeah, sure. Yeah, that seems like a possibility. I think with the kind of uh, resistance that it had, and and, um, it, it, and the opposition that was expressed, I yeah, I think that that's a possibility. It's a matter of um, who is going to who is going to file that lawsuit. That would not be up to the legislatures to mm-hmm. you know, the legislators to do that. That would be up to the to the local governments. Right. Or people who had some sort of standing to bring that kind of a suit. Right. Okay. Well interesting. Certainly something to follow. Um well let's try to do a little bit of a speed round here. Hit on a couple more issues that you had brought up ahead of this meeting. Okay. Um you had talked about real ID, which is kind of an interesting one. Um, it seems like we've been talking about that for a long time in Kansas City, uh, this issue that it, your people aren't going to be allowed ent- entry into federal facilities. Uh, and beginning on January 1st, 2018, which is closer than we might realize, um, only people with compliant IDs will be allowed to board commercial airline flights. That's a real problem. I, it, I think if you talk to most people in Kansas City, they're kind of have their hands up in the air wondering why this is still a problem. Why hasn't it been settled? So we've got you here now. What's your impression of why it hasn't been settled? I think that uh, those – we have a new breed of um, lawmakers mm-hmm. coming coming in to the legislature. And they are um, – there are a number of things they're concerned about that seem pretty extreme. One of them is that invasion of privacy. They feel that this is an invasion of their privacy and that it's going to lead to uh, tracking people uh, without their permission. Um, and they have been making a lot of noise about that. And I think what they have been hoping on a national level is that <clears throat> the federal government will back off of that requirement, which is why they haven't done anything about it. Right. It's a game of chicken. It's a game of chicken. Who's winning? Uh, Right now, the feds are winning. Uh, You are not allowed on in any kind of federal um, facility without a compliant ID at this time. If you wanted to go down and visit Fort Leonard Wood, your Missouri license would not get you in. Really? Really. Wow. And that has happened. There have been people who have been turned away because their ID is not compliant. Now, if you have a passport, that's going to be compliant. Passports are compliant. How long do you see the legislature waiting before they jump off the tracks on this one? Um, well, we took it up mm-hmm. and <clears throat> we perfected it. And so now it's waiting to go to that third red where it may or may not pass. So I suspect they're uh, working on collecting their votes <laughs> for, All right. for that. And and the really the legislation that is presented is 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 I think a pretty good compromise. It 
allows you to have a choice. When you go get your, your driver's license, you can choose to either have a license that is compliant or one that is not. It's up to you to make that decision. Right. You're Do not you plan required. on going to any federal facilities or going to going anywhere by airplane, then you probably want to be You might, or you might decide you're going to get a passport right. instead sure. and use your passport or or some other compliant form of ID. Um, it, it, it's it's up to you to make that decision, and I, I don't know why that is getting such resistance. I think the, the fear on the other side is it's a foot in the door. Right. Once you get your foot in the door, then it's, you know, then it's going to become... Bigger and bigger. I I don't know. I I think most people don't care. Right. <laughs> you know. They just I mean, want their ID to work when they you know right. they don't want to be turned away from a flight. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. Well. Um. All right. Let's touch on the senior services protection. Um. That seems. It looks like it was voted on on March sixteenth, eighty five seventy two, in favor of legislation that would impose a tax increase on low income elderly and disabled Missourians. Uh, this is a, an average tax break of $535 a year, uh, apparently. So Mm -hmm. this is, I guess the question would be, why was this a priority? And and how many people in the Northeast, if you're an an elderly resident and you rent, I mean, how many people are affected by this thing? There, oh my gosh. Um, So I, I have that information here about how many people are. Affected. I mean, we're talking thousands as opposed to hundreds. Oh yeah, a thousand statewide. All right. Yes, I I have not looked at uh, who the renters are in Northeast. Right. But the point of this is that the governor wanted to cut the aid to senior citizens and disabled people that wanted to cut the home health aid. And so the way they want to balance that then is just to cut then the tax break that renters get. So that it doesn't really seem like that's a fair kind of choice to have to make. Right. You know, that you either are going to get these services or you're going to get this tax break. Right. And when you consider that when you, you know, when you pay rent, you're, you that you pay that cost. Right. It just doesn't come in your name, but right. you still are going to pay that cost of mm-hmm. the property tax. And, and the other thing is that um, when you when you need those services, when you need to go on Medicaid, you're restricted as to how much you can have in terms of assets, mm-hmm. which is typically going to cause you to sell your home right. and then go rent. Right. Um, so you might see people that are relatively low income um, selling their home, renting to... So that to... they can become eligible for these services, right. right. If and you're close enough to the bar, you might as well. But then they don't get that that circuit breaker um, tax credit. Right. I mean, it, it just it seems like a really cruel position to put people in when we have 60 separate tax credit programs primarily for corporations and land developers to the tune of $700 million in lost revenue. So it seems like maybe that, we could that money could be made up place. elsewhere. <laughs> yes. All right. Interesting. Well, um, now this one was a little bit interesting. We, we talked about the power of the people earlier. Um, HB 905, House Bill 905, um, breed-specific dog bans. 
I, I, I thought this was interesting because you had mentioned when we talked previously that uh, this is something that a lot of people came out against. Yes. <clears throat> what was that like? No, uh, no, no. A lot of people came out in favor of this one. Oh, okay. People this, came out in favor of this. Right. All right. So this is kind of like we'll a, double from a, record. a double negative. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. The, you know, what it says is cities can't not do something. Oh, okay. So um, right. <laughs> that made it a little more confusing. But sure. basically what it says is that cities or municipalities, political subdivisions can't make laws that are targeted at specific breeds. Okay, so this is this would be a, a win for pet owners. Then. Yes. Okay. Yes, and uh, what was interesting to me was the number of, of constituents that came from here mm-hmm. to testify wow. in favor of that bill. They, um, I was surprised at how popular it was. Hmm. Uh, the room was packed. Really? <laughs> yes. What kind of things were they saying? Well. It's the way that the laws are written now is that that are not. It's not really clear how they determine whether a, a dog is part pit bull, for mm-hmm. example. And so they go by characteristics: blocky head, stocky body. Um, they don't. And and in some cases, people have been targeted. Their animals have been targeted just because they look like they might be part pit bull. But there's no way of of determining if they truly are, hmm. and <clears throat> they. So one lady testified that she, you know, they have they have these two dogs in their house. They have been family members. They're gentle. The children play with them. They would trust them, you know, with the children's lives. Mm-hmm. When they take them out, once this. Once this law passed in independence, they when they take them for a walk, they have to put on a muzzle and two collars. One is a pinch collar uh, just to take their dog out for a walk. And it seems like overkill, perhaps. It, That's right. their point, at least. Right, from mm-hmm. their point of view. And, it, and it, when you start to um, do that with dogs when you start to treat them like that then it it starts to impact their behavior too you know if your dog is used to being um pretty um unrestrained other than a leash and then you put on these two collars and your muzzle makes it difficult for the dog to breathe uh, to breathe um th- that's going to impact their behavior. Right. So this is one that's up, coming up for a vote. I see it came out of committee unanimously. It came unanimously. out of committee. Mm-hmm. Unanimously. Unanimously. Um, you think this one will pass? Um, I am I am really looking forward to hearing the debate on this one, yes. I, it may be that it just gets put into one of those committee bills, mm-hmm. and we won't, we won't hear much debate about it at all. Right. But. It'll be a, kind of a... An afterthought in one of a, a bigger bill, right? Okay, well, interesting. Uh, well, speaking of animals, you know, in Kansas City, we have our own vote, uh, general obligation bond, eight hundred million dollars worth of those. Question three of that issue deals with a, a new animal shelter in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, we're looking at, and that that same question deals with um, funding for renovation of Kansas City Muse- Museum. Uh, and one and two are going to be dealing with infrastructure concerns, flood control. Have you had any time to think about where you stand on on those those questions and the geo bond in general? And um, if you have an endorsement one way or the other, we'd be happy to take it now. 
Um, I I have thought about them. Um, I have spent enough time looking at them to uh, have made the decision that I'm going to vote in favor of them. Of all three? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because I think that they are important. I, I think they cover important um, issues that we need here in the city. On the other hand, I know that there's been some controversy mm-hmm. on the way some of them have been presented and reported. Sure. And um, that that... While that gives me pause, I am willing to go ahead and take that risk, but uh, I'm reluctant to be really an endorser. So as an individual, right. um, you've uh, resolved yeah. yourself to vote for it, but yes. uh, you're, you're not going to go out and champion it to the I, community, essentially. Right. I, yes. I don't... I don't... I don't... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just I know that there are a number of people who who feel pretty strongly about this, and I understand why. And um, it really just comes down to a decision that you make mm-hmm. uh, on your own. It's, right. Okay. Well, great. I, I think I've touched on everything I wanted to to get out get out with you today. Um, is there anything that I didn't get to that that you really wanted to to mention or? Uh, any t- any type of um, legislation coming through that that you wanted to to drop or discuss before we go any further? Um, I can't think of any. I just would want to be sure that pe- I encourage people, I, however you stand on this issue, to go vote. That's mm-hmm. uh, really incredibly important. I uh, had one of my siblings is has been pretty sick and it's, it's spent an extensive time in the hospital in St. Louis and they just recently had a primary election and he was there in the hospital when he went and I so I went to one of the nurses and I asked her if she could get make if it were possible for her to make it possible for him to vote. Mm-hmm. She called the election board there. They came to the hospital mm-hmm. and not only did they uh, get him get his vote in but there were two other patients that were there that also got to vote. Uh, I mm-hmm. it's a, it's really an important right and an important way for us to engage in our in our government in our local government and in our and in our federal government and i just want to make sure that people are encouraged to go all right neat well if uh, if he can vote then there's no excuse for an able-bodied kansas city resident to get out there april 4th 2017 a lot of big issues and everybody will have a chance to have their voice heard. It needs 57.1% of the vote to pass on all those measures. So it will be interesting to see what happened. I'll be watching it closely. I'm sure you will, too. Thanks again to Ingrid Burnett for joining us. Uh, really appreciated our discussion and appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Thank you. Thanks again to Ingrid Burnett for lending her time and expertise to this edition of the Northeast Newscast. And thank you to the listener for staying tuned. That's all for this week. 